tonight. I would love to have you take your Bibles, if you have one handy, and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And the notes in your bulletin, if you have that available to you, would be a big help to you as we, we move along here. We are preaching our way through the letter of 2 Corinthians, and uh, so continue week by week uh, in that pursuit. We will wrap that up at the end of June, and then in July, August, and into Labor Day, we will engage a 10-week theologically driven preaching series. What in the world is that? That means for 10 weeks, we will address 10 different points of significant Christian doctrine to talk about what that means and why it matters, okay? So that's what's going to happen over, over the summer. Uh, staff is debating about, uh, I get that one, I get that one, you get that one. You know how that word works. Who's preaching at Central? Who's preaching at Grace? Who's preaching here? And how it all works with people being gone. But it's a good, it's a good-hearted thing. So I think it's going to be a wonderful series. So this morning then, as we head toward our text in 2 Corinthians 11, I want you to engage with me for a moment in a bit of church history on our way to the text. Okay? <clears throat> as you know, perhaps... Over the last 2,000 years, God has used men and women of faith at key points in history to define truth, to wrestle for truth, to call out the darkness, to, to be the right person at that time. And one of those in particular, I, I think some parts of his story take us right to where we want to go today in 2 Corinthians 11. Back in 298, 298 AD, uh, a man was born by the name of Athanasius. He was born into a cultural time where the, the, the doctrine of Jesus was being debated and wrestled over, okay? And there was a guy, 40 years or so older than Athanasius, who was in the thick of it. His name was Arius. So Arius and what he taught called Arianism, still around today in some uh, cults and things like that. But he was teaching basically that there was a time when Jesus was not, that Jesus was less than fully God. So he was teaching something different from what the Bible teaches. So the people, the church leaders at the time engaged that discussion, ended up coming together from all over the empire to write a statement called the Nicene Creed, which some of you are familiar with. We sing songs based on that. And it, it, it defined, among other things, really the, the person of Jesus, the truth about Christ, fully God and fully man. But that didn't settle the whole battle. There were still others still working this through. And so as Athanasius grew up and grew into this theologically, there was still this wrestling going on over, over who Jesus was and is. Um, there was a moment. It's one of the high points of Christianity. I, I don't know at the moment if it felt like it, but, but it's, it was pretty cool. I, I hope in heaven someday to see the newsreel of this, uh, if they do such things, of course. But, but there was a moment when when things were going poorly for the doctrine of Christ, a biblical doctrine, and someone said to Athanasius, Athanasius, the world is against you. And he answered back famously, if Athanasius, if the world is against Athanasius, then Athanasius is against the world. Of course, he said it in Latin, so it had a pretty cool sound to it. Uh, then Athanasius is against the world, and he stood there for biblical doctrine of Jesus and won the day, ultimately. Now, if, if he were 
to have the same discussion today, there would be some who would say, Athanasius, you know, get with the program. The world has moved on. Further, you're arguing about a, a small point of doctrine, they would say. In fact, one word was at the heart of it all. It, it's better if I give it to you in Greek. You'll hear the slight difference. Two words, homoousion or homoousion. Is he of the same, Jesus, is he of the same substance with the Father or is he similar to him or is he close or is he a step down? Homoousion, the same, homoi, different. And it came down to one word. Seriously, Athanasius, you're going to argue over one word? You're going to, I mean, there's a, it's one letter difference. Athanasius, get over it. Yeah? Athanasius knew. No, that single letter and the difference in the word means everything. It means everything to a biblical doctrine of Jesus and whether your sins are forgiven. I mean, it, on the final day, think about it like this, analogy, not the same. Would you like to stand before God knowing that all of your sins are forgiven because of Jesus? Or how about most of them? What would you like to sign up for? Well, I'd say, well, you know, close, close. No, no. And similarly with Jesus, God in the flesh, fully God, fully man, the only one who could redeem you. So Athanasius stood in the gap for that doctrine at that time uh, at great cost to himself, exiled so many times, tossed out of the empire, sent away. Uh, In a sense, the apostle Paul at this moment with the Corinthians is calling it out kind of like that. It's, 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 it's at least on a local church level, an Athanasian moment. And I want us to see that today. Um, my title, of course, Grace Without Truth is Dangerous. I, 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 wanna, I want you to see that. Grace, truth, grace, truth. They belong together because they were wedded in Jesus. To unhinge them is very dangerous. To have grace without truth, as in this text, or truth without grace, that's not good either. Today, I promise you along the way, I will probably uh, poke at you a little bit. Some of you may leave today, after a couple of my comments later on, a little bugged, and I will not meet you in the parking lot. But I would, I would like to prod your thinking, okay? So if you agree to that, then we'll step into this. And off we go. I'll be nice. But there are some things to press on that rise from the text. And we'll do that today. Okay? I would like to pray for us. And we'll get after it here. Our Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the people like Athanasius, men and women who down through the years have stood in the gap for truth. And we want to be that today in our own time, facing the cultural issues that are ours. We want to be those who stand in the gap and stand for truth and love righteousness and love people and love you above all things. So help us here to, to, even this morning, to understand this text before us, to see its truth and to press into it, to love it, and then to see it worked out in our life. So help us now in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. On your sermon notes, of course, as always, few moments of review. I give you a few things to think about. Notably, uh, a couple weeks ago, as Nate Ferris preached, the beginning of chapter 10, he noted the shift 
in 2 Corinthians, the tone. Uh, there were some other parts earlier that were much more conciliatory, but Paul is now wrapping up this letter by going back to some issues of contention. So if you sense kind of a directness, you're, you're not uh, making that up. It's clearly here in the text. Uh, there's a section here called today's text, and I just pull in some of our, our church statements okay, that I think are important because they're, they're represented here in the text. The and, I say, one of our core values, the and, that is pulling together in church philosophy, older and younger, rather than valuing one over the other, to be involved in evangelism and discipleship, both is what God calls a church to do, and as we'll see today, both truth and grace, one without the other, I would propose, is dangerous for your spiritual health. So I want to come down to read the text, Second Corinthians 11. 1 through 15, and then we'll talk about it under the two headings that I I have here in front of you, all right? So I want to read then uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 15, God's word. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine, godly jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received... Or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. God's word. Wow. Okay. Now, you see that I have given this section two headings, and I have assigned certain scripture verses to kind of to, to, to highlight that. And on the first one, I went verses 1 to 3 and 13 to 15. It's as though this preaching unit begins and ends with some comments about the spiritual battle part of this. So Satan shows up at the beginning and he shows up at the end. 
kind of like bookends to this larger section. So we'll talk about the first part and the latter part together, the spiritual battle part, and then the middle section, verses 4 through 12. Other people would outline it differently. That's what I've done for our treatment of the text today. All right? I think it'll make sense as we go along. So the first heading then, of course, verses 1 to 3 and 13 to 15, the battle for truth, the spiritual battle that's taking place all around us. I've got four little bullet points here. It seems at the beginning, verses 1 and 2, that Paul is reluctant to head into this kind of an argument. Uh, His normal style set aside. I suspect that he's stepping into kind of the self-promotive style of the false teachers. He's, I, I think, the way I read it, it's something like this. You tend to uh, be attracted to people who promote themselves. Well, okay, if that's what works for you, I know how to do that too. And he's especially going to do that as he gets on into chapter 12 and things like that, uh, latter part of chapter 11. If you guys want to hear a resume, if that's a real big deal, is that a big deal to y'all? Okay, let's just give a resume. That's not his normal style, but he says, here we go, bear with me. Bear with me, please. And then he steps in here with his motive. Here's what I'm after. I want pure doctrine. He uses the analogy of a a young lady marrying a gentleman. And he's saying, just as you want purity in that relationship, I want to present you to Christ with pure doctrine, with a pure heart before the Lord. That's what I'm after. And, And his fear, we alluded to this last week because we referenced Genesis 3. He says, I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. You remember we referenced that that moment in the garden, that moment when human history went from God's perfect world into a world uh, affected and infected by sin, brokenness, fallenness, uh, both on a cosmic level and our own personal level. There's that moment when Satan began the conversation with Eve and he asked the fateful question, did God really say? Did God really say that? thus introducing in her mind a questioning. Did I get it wrong? Maybe, maybe, boy, I, maybe, maybe God didn't really say that. And then, and then Satan goes on the attack and says, no, God is withholding good from you. God knows that when you eat of that tree that he told you not to, that, that your eyes will be open. You'll see all kinds of different, well, that, was, that part was sort of true. Their, their eyes were open, but it wasn't good. The idea was God is withholding good from you. Think about this. God saying, don't do that, whatever that is. And Satan saying, well, when God said, don't do that, he's withholding good from you. Isn't that interesting? God says, don't do that. Satan saying, that's mean. He shouldn't tell you not to do that, whatever it is. No, when God is telling you not to do that, that you want to do, it's terrible. You should be able to. Hmm. Did God really say Did God really say? Wow. Paul's not just interested, as I mentioned here, in winning an argument. He's after the hearts and minds of God's people. So he uses that example from from Genesis 3 and says, that's what's going on right here. And the battlefield, as he says in verse 3, your thoughts. That's what he's referring to here. Other places you find your heart referred to, etc. But here he has in mind your thoughts, your thinking processes. I don't want your thinking to be affected, infected by the wrong things. And friends, may I say, we live in a world, you know those old vices they used? You know, maybe, you, maybe you've got one of those in your workshop, whoever you are, you got a vice, you put something in there, you crank the little thing and it squishes. This is your head, okay? Being pressed with ideas from the culture around you and the vice is tightening. Your thoughts, 
pressed from all sides. No, no, think like this. Think like this. Think like this. This is us, right? Culture, TV, blogs, everywhere on the internet, books, whatever, if you still read them, magazines, if you still get those newspapers, I doubt it. Whatever it is, is how you absorb information. It's like a vice pressing ideas into your head. Paul says here, I'm concerned that your thoughts will be led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Are you paying paying attention to how your thoughts are affected by the world around you? I'd like you to be thinking about this throughout the morning because it's not just out there, it's in here. Now, next bullet point, number four, turn the page. False teachers, please, please pay attention to this. False teachers love to quote scripture, refer to Jesus, call for prayer, emphasize unity, love, and other core biblical values. They minimize areas of difference and even use cultural shame to pressure God's people to surrender truth. Did you get this? The fact that someone quotes scripture and tells people to pray about it, please do not think that that is a guarantee that that person is teaching biblical truth. Anybody can come along, slap scripture verses on it. It's like putting lipstick on a pig, and you end up thinking, wow, it must be true. I mean, look at they quote scripture. That person quotes scripture. They quote scripture all the time. They have a big following. They've sold how many hundred thousand books on the New York Times bestseller list? Clearly, they're telling the truth. Everybody on the internet believes so. All my friends, dear friends, I'm saying to all of us, just because somebody quotes scripture, refers to Jesus, calls for et cetera, et cetera, that doesn't mean they're telling you something that fits with the Bible. Okay, how are you supposed to know? This is a call today for what's called spiritual discernment. And it's based on the word of God, based on you knowing the Bible well enough to smell something that isn't right. See? So immersing your mind and your heart in the word of God, letting it run over your soul so that the only source of objective truth is so close to the surface in your mind that you can sense and smell and know, okay, something there's not true no matter how much scripture that person's quoting. Be wary. You should be wary of everything you hear, including here. I'm going to say some things later. You might go, oh, I didn't like that. Okay, check it out with the scripture, please, before you dismiss it. But examine what you hear. The Bereans, we mentioned those guys last week. Search the scriptures daily to see if what they were being told was true. So there is your source of truth. Cultural shame. Cultural shame is sometimes used to pressure God's people. You've heard the famous expression, you are on the wrong side of history. There you go. You're on the wrong side of history. Sometimes people are told this today. Evangelical Christians, you're on the wrong side of history. Are you aware that everybody's on the other side of this fence and then there's you and your little friends on the other side who are saying, wait a minute, just relax and get over the fence. You're on the wrong side of history. That's, that was why I told that story of Athanasius. Athanasius, the world is against you. That's cultural shame depending on the motive for which it was said. Cultural shame. The world is over here. Everybody else has okayed this. And then there's you. Okay? Is it what Elijah felt? Lord, I'm all alone. And he said, no, you're not. There's 7,000 others who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Thousands who haven't given in. But, but cultural shame. Uh, 
one popular writer, current writer these days, talking about this business of being on the wrong side of history, put it like this. Uh, He did a good job with it, and I forget his name at the moment. But he said something like this. Remembering Jesus, Jesus and the Roman Empire. Jesus was on the wrong side of history in the Roman Empire days. But check it out 2,000 years later. The Roman Empire lies in the dust of history, and Jesus is doing quite well. Yeah, wrong side of history, eh? Wrong side of history. Well, you, you hear it today, so do I. You're on the wrong side of history. Now, if you think about verses 13 to 15, similarly, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Paul says very specifically, such man, the ones he's referring to here in the middle, these people that are undermining the Apostle Paul, putting themselves on a par with the Apostle Paul through whom God is speaking, a capital A Apostle, these people are saying, well, we're that too. We are too. Paul's an apostle? Sure, that's not a problem. I am too. Paul says, no, they actually aren't. False apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Apostles of Christ. And Satan does this. He disguises himself as an angel of light, so it's no wonder if his servants do the same. Man, call it out, Paul. The battle for truth is a spiritual battle. It's reflecting here this last week on that terrible event in Florida during COVID. Do you remember that 13-story condo tower that collapsed? That section fell, and six seconds later, that section fell. Uh, dozens and dozens of people lost their lives, many of whom uh, had no remains found. Why did it fall? There was no explosion. There was no um, bomb. There was no terrorism. Why did, the, why did it fall? Well, articles that I was reading were early on, but it says this, (laughs) profound. The collapse appeared to have begun somewhere near the bottom of the building. (laughs) Yes, rather than structural failure at the top. In other words, there was something wrong with the foundation. And it moved a little at a time over 40 years until that fateful moment when the whole thing came a-tumbling down. Which, by the way, is how we tend to shift. Whether morally or theologically, we tend to shift a quarter inch at a time. Oh, that's not that big a deal. That's not that big a deal. That's not that big a deal. And over, over time, a quarter inch, quarter inch, quarter inch, quarter inch, before long, we have shifted from a place of orthodoxy and biblical Christianity to okaying all kinds of things that the Bible says absolutely not to. But we've shifted a quarter. If you, if you, at the very beginning, somebody said, I'd like you to move positions, you'd say, oh, no, I would never do that. But you do, a quarter inch at a time. That's how you get there. That's how a whole condo buildings collapse and lots of people die. It's because the foundation is destroyed. The psalm writer said, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Uh, if the foundation shifts little by little by little, well... The battle for truth is a spiritual battle. I want to go to that middle section, verses 4 through 12, and you'll notice my heading here is not something I'm commending. It is an observation. Biblical discernment is out. Theological agnosticism is in. Let me, let me say a word about what I meant there, okay? Biblical discernment, we'll talk about that for a couple of minutes here. Biblical discernment is that ability to know the word of God you do it by practice, day by day by day, like breathing. You practice it all the time. 
but knowing the word of God and applying it wisely and accurately to the issues of life, okay? Biblical discernment seems to be out. Theological agnosticism seems to be in. Theological agnosticism is the idea that for you to make any, any statement about what's true or not true, right or wrong, is profoundly arrogant. You're aware of this. This is the culture pressing in on your head. I mean, to say something's wrong seems very unkind. I don't mean that you're being a jerk about it. I mean just to call it out. That's not right. That's wrong. Or, no, that's not good. But that just, you're supposed to say in this, this day and age, you're supposed to say, in my opinion. You're supposed to say, in my humble opinion. If it doesn't, if it doesn't bother you too much. You, you, that's what you're supposed to say to really fit in with the culture around you. To make a pronouncement like, that wasn't good, or that was bad, or... My goodness sakes, what kind of arrogant person are you? Theological agnosticism has begun to infect the church to where even Christians are, end up wanting to say, well, you know, uh, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But again, that's just my truth. I mean, I, I'm not really sure. I mean, it, we apologize. Why? Because we've absorbed the cultural pressure from around us that says to say anything is certain is arrogance. Now, to think about this with you, both of these, all right? Biblical discernment, theological agnosticism. A couple of books. This one you, I've mentioned before, and by now you should have all bought it and read it. Man, I mentioned it a couple of years ago, for goodness sakes. Come on. It's called The Discipline of Spiritual Discernment by Tim Challies. You should order it today on your Amazon app, and it'll be at your house tomorrow. You, and then read it. Because it talks about the discipline, meaning you've got to work at it, the discipline of spiritual discernment. You should have some. I don't mean the book. I mean the spiritual discernment part. You should get this. Uh, the, the discipline of spiritual discernment, this book uh, wades into the waters about what it is, what it isn't. It talks about those cool words like judgment. I mean, you want to be judged. You don't want to be judgmental. See, to say something's wrong is so judgmental. And so we go, oh, oh, that would be terrible. Man, I mean, terrible. You can call me all kinds of things. Don't call me judgmental. That'd be awful. So he differentiates between the right kind of judgmentalism, where you call it out because God said it. You didn't make it up. And the wrong kind, when you're just being kind of a snob. Don't be that. But can a Christian judge something? He's going to say, you'd better... You, you, you'd better know how to do that and, and the standards by which you would do so. And judgmental is an attitude maybe, but to judge something is right or wrong or truth or error, hello, kind of seems like what a Christian is supposed to do. A couple of interesting things here. In a, in a chapter at the beginning, when you can say it's called a call to discernment. I've got these cool little flags all over because the book was pretty good. But he... he um, He's going to list several things. One of those is this. Lack of discernment is proof of spiritual immaturity. Isn't that interesting? Lack of discernment is proof of spiritual immaturity. It's like a child with a knife. Pretty dangerous. Yeah, proof of spiritual immaturity. Don't have discernment. You're just like a little puppy running around sniffing everything going, oh, that looks great. That's great too. That's great too. It's all great. You guys are all great. Every truth is great. It's all equal. It doesn't really matter. It's not really true or not. It just depends on you. And man, it's all good. Really? You don't get out much. See? So 
among the things he quotes here, he quotes Hebrews 5, which I have in your sermon notes as well, at the bottom of the second page. Hebrews 5, 11 to 14, solid food is for the mature. He's contrasting this with babies who just need milk all the time. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's the function. It's what you're supposed to be able to do, is tell the difference between good and evil. How do you get there? Well, discernment, trained by constant practice. And of course, he's already been talking about the use of the word of God in the preceding text. He also quotes John Stott from one of his commentaries on 2 Timothy. And I'm going to read you John Stott's comment that Tim Challies is reading favorably. He says, the church from John Stott, the church of our age, of our day, urgently needs to heed the message of the second letter of Paul to Timothy all around us. We see Christians in churches relaxing their grasp of the gospel, fumbling it, in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. A new generation of young Timothys is needed who will guard the sacred deposit of the gospel, who are determined to proclaim it, prepared to suffer for it, and will pass it on pure and uncorrupted to the generation which in due course will rise up to follow them. Interesting. Discernment. Discernment, you should read that book. Another one that I think is interesting, this came out in 2016, it's called Confident Pluralism. I've mentioned this one before too, so some of you no doubt have read it. Confident Pluralism, John Inazu, I-N-A-Z-U, is the writer, and he's, he's talking about the cultural uh, context of our day that is described under a pluralistic heading, and he's talking about how to live faithfully as a Christian in it. Okay? That is, knowing how to interact with different ideas, and yet holding firm to truth. So a couple of things that I will reference here. It's in a chapter called Civic Aspirations, where he is reminding God's people about the importance of tolerance, humility, and patience. Um, A word about tolerance. He defines it. Uh, Many of us who are older remember the tolerance of our younger days. Tolerance has been around a while. It used to mean a willingness to accept genuine difference and basically be kind to people. That's what it used to mean. But if you haven't noticed, the definition, popular definition of tolerance has shifted to where it means something different today than it originally meant. Uh, I'm in favor of the old school one that means a willingness to accept genuine difference and be kind to people who are very different from me. I won't be mean to whoever it is, however they present themselves. I'll be kind. That's old school tolerance. Today, he would say, this kind of tolerance, the good stuff, does not require embracing all beliefs and viewpoints as good and right. That's what we're being taught today. To be tolerant is to accept all viewpoints as good and right, equal. He says a little bit later, a similar thing. The tolerance of confident pluralism does not impose the fiction that all ideas are equally valid or morally harmless. The culture around us, that vice pressing on in your head, calls us, all of us, to believe that all ideas are equal, equally harmless, morally harmless, which if you think for like, I don't know, five seconds, you'll realize that's just absolutely not true. There are ideas that are morally harmful. There are ideas that are morally wrong. And God's people are, are called to tell the difference. So these are two books that I think are very helpful in thinking this through from a popular culture standpoint, but it's a call to biblical discernment. A couple of things, if I may, here, as we look to the notes and then back to the text, 
under this first heading, I just remind us the Apostle Paul is not petty, he's not insecure, he's not close-minded, which of course, as you know, is one other one of the big sins of our day is being accused of being close-minded. We'd say, oh, no, no, your mind only works. I've read the, I've read the, um, you know, the bumper sticker. Uh, a mind only works like a parachute, only if it's open. You have to have an open mind. Well, Paul is not close-minded. Don't, don't accuse him of this terrible sin. But he's also, he's also, as you see in Philippians 1, he knows what it means to ignore minor differences. He does. He's defining that. There were some. He says, some people are preaching Christ from envy and strife, uh, seeking to cause me pain in my imprisonment. That's Philippians 1. He says, you know what? As long as they're preaching Christ, I'm going to let the whole thing go. They're preaching truth. They got bad motives. Let them walk. They're preaching truth. Paul knows how to let certain things go. But look at verse 4. He says, if someone comes, verse 4, I think, is a key to this whole text. It's an accusation. If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or you accept a different gospel. So another Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. He says, if this is what happens, look at this, you put up with it readily enough. That is not a commendation. You put up with it, he says to the church. You put up with it. A different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. This is grace unhinged from truth. Both are needed. Jesus, John 1, said twice, he is described as full of grace and full of truth. If you are full of grace, you'll accept all kinds of nonsense if you don't have truth. You'll just give everybody a theological hug. It's all equal. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you say. It's, I'm just going to love on you. You know what? It's all equal. Oh, love them for goodness sakes. You need truth. Now, if you, if you only have truth and no grace, then what happens? Well, you're running around smacking people with your big, you know, 50-pound Bible. And you're Mr. and Mrs. Grouchy Pants. And you're just truth and no kindness. And I wouldn't commend that either. Jesus came full of grace and full of truth, and that's what we aspire to as well. I hope you aspire to this. Gracious, kind, riveted to truth. Both of those are needed. God help us to have them both. I mention here uh, Jeremiah 5, 30 to 31. Again, an Old Testament text that... um, it describes a situation much like our own, I fear. And again, not a commendation. I read it here. Jeremiah says this, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their discretion. And my people love it so. They've embraced it. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule at their direction. And my people love it. So what will you do when the end comes? Interesting. Biblical discernment. Now, Paul is calling the Corinthians to exercise biblical, theologically driven discernment of value and practice under severe attack in our own cultural context. The Corinthians are judging truth based on secondary issues. Take a look with me. Verse 5. 
5 and 6. Paul says, I consider I'm not the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we've made this plain to you in all things. He refers to some of this back in chapter 10. Uh, We saw that in chapter 10, verse 10. uh, Chapter 10, verse 2. Some of the accusations of these false teachers. And here's here's what I think is going on. You you can think about this. I think the Corinthians are, are judging truth by saying, okay, you got Paul. He's kind of a mediocre speaker. Every now and then people fall asleep and fall out of the window. That's the book of Acts. Um, he doesn't have really great stories or jokes. I mean, solid, sure, solid, but you know, not all that great of a speaker. Eutychus, poor guy, boom, dead. Well, and then there's these other guys. They've got great stories. They tell some super good jokes. <laughs> great jokes. Wow. I'm not against jokes or stories. So do you determine truth by how good a speaker the person is? Is, is that the measure? They're riveting to listen to. I mean, I hope you find truthful people riveting to listen to. Is that the measure of truth? No, is the answer. It's how well you're connected with the word of God. So I think in their day, Paul's saying, look, I may be unskilled in speaking, but I'm not so in knowledge. I'm giving you the truth of the word of God. I suspect his detractors are saying, you know what? He's not that great to listen to. Clearly, he can't be really speaking truth. And I would suggest the next paragraph, this chunk in the middle, I think there's something else at play here. We're not really told the cultural context, but he's talking about money. It's like he's saying, hey, excuse me. So I I didn't demand a big speaking fee. I didn't charge you guys any money. I didn't sell tickets at the door. Forgive me. I think there's biting sarcasm being played here. Forgive me for preaching to you free of charge. I suspect he's poking at the other guys who may have had like a big speaking fee or demanded a nice treatment. Like, you know, red carpet would be nice. Send the nice chariot to pick me up at the airport. I, I don't know quite what this was, but Paul is saying, and it, clearly there's something behind it. You know what? I didn't take any money from you. Forgive me this wrong. Apparently, I think the Corinthians were judging people based on kind of like people do today, political season. Uh, to have this person come, their speaking fee is like $25,000. Wow, they must be an amazing speaker. Right? Or they're sitting around waiting for some sucker to write him a check for $25,000. They don't have any clue either. But I think the idea is Paul saying, look, I came to you free. And that's kind of how you treated me. Like zero. Forgive me. Next time I'll charge admission. I think the Corinthians are judging truth based on speaking ability. Some of the other cultural circumstances. And Paul's saying, hey, can you, can you think any deeper than that? Has, has, is that the level of your spiritual discernment? Is, is that it? Is that how you can tell? They, they sell a lot of books. They must know what they're talking about. There's a commercial. You can find it still on YouTube. I think it's under the category of dumbest commercial ever. Can't believe it was played more than once. Uh, people in general should have risen up and, and, and revolted because it was revolting. But they were selling, I think, some kind of um, supplement for your joints and joint health. I think that's what it was. You check it out. Find it on YouTube. And, and it went something like this. If you, if you, if you want some of this, uh, get a hold of us. We'll send this to you free. Uh, shipping and handling. We'll send you a bottle of this stuff free. It's amazing. And there's this poor lady that they probably paid a bunch of money to say this. And she says this, and I'm going to say dumbest line ever. She says, they're giving, they let you try it for free. It must be good. Stop for a moment. They're giving it away. 
it must be good. And it played over and over again on our televisions. And apparently people wrote in and got their free bottle of amazingly good medicine or whatever it was. They're giving it away free? It must be good. I can picture it now. Transfer that to another setting. There's a used car lot down on South Tacoma Way. They're giving away cars. They must be good. That's exactly what you would do is rush down there and pick up a set of keys. No, because you're smarter than that. They're giving them away free? Oh, for goodness sakes. No, I'm, I'm just saying that sometimes there's a disconnect in, in discernment, both on the secular level and I hate to say in the church as well. As I said at the top, false teachers love to quote scripture, refer to Jesus, call for prayer, and so on. And sometimes God's people swallow it, hook, line, and sinker. That's, I think, what Paul's pressing on here. He's got some detractors who are, who are trying to push themselves forward as, as apostles, and Paul says they're not. Satan disguises himself as, angels of, as an angel of light. And Do you even notice? Do you even notice? Now, I want to go to the section at the bottom called Responding to God's Word. And here is the place where I promised to bug you just a little bit or more than a little bit. But I want to think with you about some things and I want to be very practical and hopefully spur you to think. False teachers often and regularly disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And I'm saying, please be careful who you listen to, what books you read, what streams you drink from, what blogs you, you read, whatever source of information you absorb, please be careful what you think of and don't think, oh, that person's an amazing speaker, that that's the measure of truth. No, to the degree that they accurately represent the word of God, to that degree, that person is speaking truth. And I hope you can smell the difference. I hope you can tell the difference. If there's a, you know, something dead in the room, I hope you, can, hope you know that's not true. I hope you can tell the difference. Second bullet point. Today's major push is to determine truth based on emotions or what feels right or on hearing the voice of the Lord. Please get this. Not every voice that speaks into your little brain is the voice of the Lord. Are you aware of this? I am, I am constantly stunned. Now, again, on this, please, please hear what I'm saying and, and don't hear me say what I'm not saying. Not saying God is unable to communicate. I am saying this. If you read the Bible, which I highly commend, you will discover that the voice of the Lord coming to God's people is pretty rare. It's not the norm. It's not the normative thing. And I think, oh, how interesting it is today that people seem to hear the voice of the Lord telling them where to find a good parking place. Seriously. I've read these. Long conversation with God. I'm really late, God, for my doctor's appointment. Please steer me to the right parking place. Oh, turn left. God said turn left. I'm going to go. Yeah, there's a parking place. Clearly, it was the voice of the Lord. Forgive me for a moment. I'm going to speak strongly. Forgive me if I gag. Are you serious? That's the level of spiritual discernment? I have heard it taught. I told you I'm going to poke on this, and I mean it. I will. Don't hear me say more than what I'm going to say. There's so much nonsense that goes on today in the business of subjective Christianity. If you, if you trace this theologically, Protestant Reformation, 1500s, Scripture, the sola scriptura, the objective word of God rose to the front. 
pietism, and I won't take the time to trace it all out through history or definitions. You check it out if you wish. Uh, pietism, as pietism rose, subjectivism rose. The, the, and we're at a fever pitch today, relying on our emotions, our feelings, our senses, to the point where the word of God is kind of gathering dust on the shelf. Am I saying that God is unable to communicate? Oh, please don't, don't hear me say that. That's not what I said. But I, I would say this. Since most statistics are made up on the spot, I'll make up one. About 95% of, of, of all of this is, is pretty good nonsense. I, I very much believe that. Um, God helping you find parking places, I bless, I bless him for when he does steer us in the right direction. Conversations back and forth. Um, I have heard it said. I've heard people teach on this. and I, I can't believe that it ever sells. I've heard people say that if you're praying and there's a thought that jumps into your head that isn't a normal thought for you, and it comes in, it's like intrusive, it just shows up, that that's the voice of the Lord. God's people, that is about the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You know the thoughts that pop into my brain when I'm praying sometimes? I promise you it's not the voice of the Lord. I promise. No, it's a voice from another place. Sitting there praying, and you're concentrating, and a voice pops into your head like you've never thought before, and an idea, go slap so-and-so, pops into your head. And you say, I wonder if that's the voice of the Lord. No, is the answer. No. Somebody come along and tell you that's how you hear the voice of the Lord, sit still, be quiet, and wait for thoughts to pop into your head unbidden? Uh, no, that's, I'm not making that up. Oh, dear people, biblical discernment. Uh, are we that desperate to hear a voice from the Lord? As I've heard said, somebody said first hour, if you want to hear a voice from the Lord, oh, go to the word of God. God has spoken. God has spoken. You want to hear it audibly? A voice from the Lord? Read it out loud. Again, don't overhear what I'm saying. But I am saying this, back to the word of God. Back to the word of God to guide your life. Caution the whole business that is, runs through our culture. And I, I, I can't believe it, that God's people say things even. Like, oh, just, just, here's my advice to you. Follow your heart. What a stupid thing to say. Because my heart will lead me right off a cliff. What does the Bible say about my beautiful heart that I should follow? My heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the hearts. Verse 10, Jeremiah 17. Wow, are you kidding? Follow your heart. Yes, just follow your heart. Don't ruin your life. Congratulations. No, I, I, am, I am just so bothered by all this. I, one other little story, and I'll head toward a close here. Uh, there was a lady some years ago here. She, well, she's not here anymore. She got so mad at me. She came to my office. She wanted to meet with me. She had some papers, details of which are immaterial for the moment. But she told me that she had sat down with a pen, and just like the pen started working. I, go, I mean, and she said, that's, I mean, God spoke right through my hand. And it's all written first person. I didn't even look. I just... And I mean, this is what God said about what I should do about my life. And I told her I didn't believe at all that it was the voice of the Lord. She didn't like that at all. 
It was, like, it was to her, it was authoritative scripture. God had spoken to her in a pen and a piece of paper. God had spoken to her. Forget the Bible. Because what she was proposing was contrary to the Bible. See? It's like, well, it's either you and your pen, magic pen, or the word of God. And I'm going to opt for the word of God. And I don't believe that at all. She left in a big huff. Like the kind of huff where people outside your own, is she okay? It's like, no, she's really mad at me. And I told her it was nonsense. Yeah, I think it was. That's not how God speaks to us today. Read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. Please. Biblical discernment. Biblical discernment. Well. We still friends? I hope so. Disagree with something? That's fine. That's fine. Just just give careful thought to what I just said. Give careful thought. I'm going to make a comment or two on 1 Corinthians 15 in a moment. We're going to close by just coming to Jesus in remembering Christ in communion. That's what we're going to do. It'll take just a few minutes. Uh, Time is gone, I know. But I want us to remember Christ crucified, buried, risen, coming again. Rivet yourself to him, please. I want to pray. We'll say a few words about how we'll proceed from here. Father, thank you for your word. We live in a culture wrestling over such things. God's people right in the middle of it. Our heads in that vice, pressed to think like the culture around us. Pressed to change a quarter inch at a time. The battle for our mind. Oh, Father, would you connect us truth and grace together? Plenty of grace for people different from us. Oh, yes, kindness. Riveted to truth, connected. God, give us both. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his death in our place on the cross. Thank you for his resurrection from the dead. Thank you for the gospel. Forgiveness from sin. Thank you. Thank you. Help us now as we remember Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. As always, we invite you, if you know Christ as your Savior, to share with us in remembering Christ in communion. There are three places here that have communion service available to you. Uh, Two little cups, you need to take both. The cracker at the bottom uh, is in one little cup and then the other cup of juice on top. Again, if you know Christ, we invite you to share with us. It's a telling of the gospel again. That's really what it is. It's not some magic ceremony that makes you a better Christian. It's a remembering Jesus and telling again the story of the gospel. And the way we do that here, if the two sections in the middle, if you'd make your way down the middle aisle and be served down here and on the sides, you'd come up by the windows uh, as you, as you come, please feel free to serve the person near you, a family member or a friend, or someone near you who's mobility impaired, who would appreciate your serving them. That would be wonderful. Thank you for taking care of people around you. Once you come back with those elements to your seat, uh, I'll just read a, a bit of scripture from 1 Corinthians 15, and then we'll remember Christ together. Okay? So please come and be served. <laughs>
In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is telling the gospel again. And I would just remind us of his source of authority. How do you know? Says who? So Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This is Bible language for how you know something. How do you know? According to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. How do you know? According to the scriptures. Then he appeared to Peter and the 12 and so on. How do you know that when Jesus died on the cross, he bore our sins in his body? How do you know? Do you feel it? Is that it? Is that how you know? No, it's because the word of God tells you this. That's how you know. Are you forgiven when you trust Christ as your savior? Do you always feel forgiven? Not so much. But are you? Yes. How do you know? Because the Bible tells you this. See, your certainty is not on your feelings. It's on the scriptures. That's how you know. That's how you know. This little cracker. It's telling of the gospel, the body of Jesus. Nailed to a cross of wood. My sin upon his shoulders. Let's remember Jesus together. In the telling of the gospel, the little cracker points to the body of Christ broken for us. The little cup of juice points us to his blood shed to the point of death, even that death on a cross. Book of Hebrews reminds us again and again and again, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away your sin. It was the blood of the perfect sacrifice, Christ alone, who died on the cross for us. His blood shed for me. Let's remember Jesus together. I would like to pray for us. If you'd stand with me, please, as we do that. Our Father, we live in a very feeling-oriented day. It's all about how we feel. Oh, our feelings matter to you. They do. Our emotions. But as a matter of certainty, oh, Father, thank you for giving us the word of God, a more sure word of prophecy. I don't always feel according to what is true. Thank you for the living, the written word of God, inspired, inerrant, authoritative. Thank you for this guide for our life to call me from how I feel to what is true. Thank you for your patience with us. Pray that this week as we go from here that our certainty on anything would be riveted on you. God, make it so. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.